0: understanding the mystery of the Trinity, that's what we're covering. This symbol is actually a symbol that the church created to try to explain the Trinity. If you look at it, what's supposed to happen, of course, is it's divided into three pieces and it kind of is a circular thing that keeps going around and around to explain the oneness of God and the three distinct personalities of God. This, this was not complicated enough, so of course somebody had to complicate it a little bit further. Go to the next slide. This is kind of the official understanding the Trinity diagram. This is actually sanctioned by the church early on. It was originally written in Latin. It's been translated into English. Here's what it looks like. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit trying to show a distinction that each one is not the other, but each one of them is God. Okay. You can see why this topic has a lot of mystery surrounding it. First, it was, the, it was these uh, explanations that were kind of lacking in some way. I don't know. This is probably I don't wanna make fun of this, maybe this was divinely inspired and I'm about to be zapped for saying this, but hey, just you look at this and you think, this could confuse more people than it might be able to help. The real question we're getting at is, what is the Trinity? What's it all about, okay? Tonight's an intro, like we always do. We just kinda intro our topics, get our minds around the topic before we dive into the deep stuff. So, look at it, think about it. What do you think the Trinity is, if someone asks you? Do you think about the Trinity? do you concentrate on God's triune nature? Are we susceptible to kind of splitting them up and dealing with them separately? That's kind of what we're doing. Go to the next slide. to talk a little bit about why we're going to do this. Why study the Trinity? You guys know that we begin each topic with a why. We need to justify the time that we're going to spend for three or four weeks and then we need to understand why we're going to spend that time. Our time is valuable. God could have us doing something else. Why are we going to be here for three or four weeks studying this? Here it is. Number 1, God wants us to know him and to know him fully. I think if we look into our hearts, we would confess that we tend to limit who God is a little bit because the doctrine of the Trinity is difficult. Number 2, the Trinity is the highest revelation that God has made of himself to people. God chose to reveal his triune nature to us. God wanted us to see him in that fashion. Now, I think we might see over time it was a gradual revelation. He was preparing people for that revelation, but still it seems to be like one of the highest forms in the way that he reveals himself. So, he himself he's taken the time to give us this higher revelation would want us to know what it is. Number 3. This is important I think for us to understand. The Trinity is not just a doctrine, it's who God is. A lot of people refer to the Trinity as the doctrine of the Trinity, like it's a theory like it's an idea. But the truth is, God is Trinity, he's triune. And it's not just a theological idea, it's who he is. So for us, why are we spending our time? So that we know who he really is. Four, the Trinity is most often misunderstood almost anything in Christianity. In fact, we're gonna point out some things that people say that are almost downright wrong about the Trinity. A lot of times when people are confused about the Trinity, It's because they're using either mixed metaphors that somebody has given them in a church that really doesn't really apply, or they're using definitions that are wrong, or they're just actually wrong about what they think the Trinity is. But I also say it's misunderstood because if I asked most people about it, it'd be hard for them to really say, yes, I understand it. I know how it works. I know what it's all about. I mean, we believe in it. We profess to believe in it. But a lot of us would rather just kind of leave it alone. Five, Christians prefer a living faith one requires that we use our mind. There's really a movement in the church of anti-intellectualism that our faith should be alive and vibrant and and emotional and we shouldn't really be dwelling so much on these kind of topics. Trinity, unfortunately, is one of those things that you can get about as alive and vibrant as you want. It's still not going to make sense. unless you sit down and break it down and really think about it because it's one that bends our minds a little bit. I think number six is very important. There is a great temptation in the church for us to remake God into our own image. Here's an example. First of all, we understand that idolatry is remaking God into another image, even if it's our own or some other image. And even though a lot of us would say, well, we're not really idolaters, really, when it comes to our worship of God, (laughs) we actually try to break down God into things that we understand instead of who he might really be. I'm tempted to do this. Thinking of God the Father as one thing all by itself, The Holy Spirit is just something we don't really understand that does magic things sometimes. Instead of really understanding what each of the three personages of God are really all about and how they're one, not separating them in a convenient way. And I know that's probably our own minds needing to do that to be able to just comprehend the infinite. But Christians have that temptation in the church to kind of break them apart and conveniently assign certain roles to them, which they may or may not have. I'm not saying they don't have different roles. But we kind of do that in our own thinking. So watch for that as you go through it. Test yourself. Am I tempted to remake God into my own image? Am I tempted to kind of maybe overemphasize one part of the triune God over the others somehow? Number seven, the Trinity really gives us evidence of how far God is beyond our human limitations. And I think this series for us is going to test our limitations. It's going to test how much we can think and how much we can really bend our minds around difficult topics. We are finite beings. We're trying to understand an infinite God. We're trying to understand something that just seems to almost violate the law's of our world that we understand, three and one and one and three, and this is what makes it one of the topics that's ignored. Let's just put it aside. Let's go back to the topics we understand. Salvation, grace, mercy, even those topics are easier for us to understand than dealing with the Trinity head-on. But again, if we don't deal with it head-on and understand it, we're just ignoring pieces of who God is that he's revealed to us, and we're just choosing to ignore those. That's why the eighth is up there. Many churches shy away from the topic because of the faith commitment that's required to talk about it. So, those last two are important. This topic is going to test your minds. It's going to show us that God is much more infinite than we can ever be and that God should be infinite. If we're worshiping a finite being, let's just forget it and go home. But it's also going to test faith. On a Sunday morning, if you're sitting in church and there's several hundred people in this room, and you start talking about the Trinity, there's going to be some people who are just going to get freaked out by it, who don't yet have the faith commitment to watch their faith being shaken a little bit as they try to comprehend it. I got to tell you that when I'm reading the topical materials leading up to this, I, I wanted to put the book down and just go, forget it, let's just not do the topic. I, I just, this is going to be hard. I don't, you know, I don't want to do this topic. And I, even this afternoon at like 5:30 I'm still like finishing up this PowerPoint I'm like forget it let's just not do it. I can't do it cuz my mind can't wrap around this concept. And I start imagining God and and the son and the father and the holy spirit being one and three. It's like I don't I don't think my mind understands this. Let's just go back to talking about evangelism. <laughs> that I can understand. I can make us all feel guilty enough to go door to door or something like that, you know? But this is hard stuff, all right? That's why we're going to study the Trinity, just precisely for those reasons, because it's swept under the rug, and not even in a, because people are ill-intentioned. I think it's just because, honestly, if you, even if you're a pastor and you're thinking, what topic do I want to deliver to my, my services on Sunday morning? You think, like, anything but this It's just too much, and we're going to lose some people who are just going to be wigged out, you know? So hopefully this group is strong enough, and I offer this as an invitation. If you are struggling with it, let's talk about it, because I'm struggling with it. We need to talk about it. That's why we have a smaller discussion format to do this, and you guys can stop at any point and say, I want to talk about it. All right, let me leave that as an open invitation. You guys know that you can interrupt me at any time. All right, so that's the thinking heady reasons for why we're going to study the Trinity. Here's my personal reason for why we're going to study the Trinity. Go to the next slide. Who's this? (laughs) This is Al Pacino. All right. Now, you guys know, I told you a few weeks ago over Easter, my dad's cousin, who looks the spitting image of this guy. I mean, if I look at this picture, it's the guy. All right. I mean, doesn't he look, I mean, Lena was there, doesn't he look, he looks exactly like this. All right. So that everybody in the family just calls him Uncle Al Pacino because he just looks like him. Right. We had one of the most vigorous and intense debates about religion. He hates Christianity with a passion that's unrivaled. I've yet to see as many Christians be passionate about Jesus as this man is passionate against God. He really just has a hatred for God. Now, I found out later one of the reasons was is that he lost a son at a young age, and the son was very dear to him. And everybody around him told him the reason that he lost his son was it was God's will. So you can imagine in his heart the kind of god he imagined and the kind of god he rebels against that if this is your will then i will fight you to the end he's the kind of guy that when you sit around a table on any given occasion like easter he's looking to pick a fight about religion with anybody who shows up and i happen to be the guy who was asked to give grace that day so he just had targeted me right away like yeah a religious one you know let's go after him his biggest issue with christianity and it hung up everyone around the table was the trinity He thought that if anything in Christianity was ridiculous, it was the Trinity. He said that if Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, he couldn't be God because he's sitting at the right hand of God. How can he be God and sit at the right hand of God? And everybody at the table is suddenly like eating because no one has the answer. Go to the next slide. So you know, this is kind of like as the thing, you know, he gets more animated. (laughs) And the whole time in my mind, he's turning into the guy from the devil's advocate, you know. And I mean, you got to understand when he yells, he yells just like Al Pacino. I mean, it's like if Al Pacino ever died, this guy would just fill in and nobody would know the difference. And I mean, he's getting really animated about the Trinity, about God, about God's will, about how all the priests that he's ever talked to, all the pastors he's ever talked to, all the Christians he's ever spoken to, have never been able to explain this doctrine to anyone. To his satisfaction. He says, I go to the priest and I show him the Bible and say, explain this to me. And the guy just kind of stands there and freezes up or tells me something about just have faith or whatever. And we start arguing back and forth more and more. I've never really yelled during a a witnessing effort, but we were actually yelling. It was the only way I could calm him down was to yell louder than him. And it was, you know, I think everybody was just like, okay, okay, let's just talk about something else, you know? But I mean, I just wasn't gonna let him go. I really wanted him to know that somewhere in Christianity there was a reasoned faith and you might not accept it, but I'm not gonna cower away from it, you know? And again, it was really focused on this issue. Finally, he's just like, he's getting to the point where he's just so angry. Go to the next slide, Anthony. This is kind of where he ends up. The hatred is so present. You know? And I just kept thinking, like, I know that God hears your questions, and I know he wants to meet you and answer you. And he says, I want him to show himself to me. You know, if he's up there, you know, it's almost like, you know, almost daring him. And I thought, that's the greatest thing. Go ahead, dare God, because he just might show up. You know, now I don't know what's going to happen the rest of his life. I don't know what his faith story is going to be. You know? I'm interested. I'll probably see him once every two or three years for the rest of my life. And I'll be interested to see if God does show up in his life, if he does answer his things. But I think in a lot of people's hearts, even in the church, not just in his unbelieving heart, but even in people's believing hearts, there's something about this doctrine that kind of reaches in and really kind of gets to us at a deep level. Like, how does this work? And unfortunately, a lot of the answers the church has given just don't come through. Am I going to have better ones? I don't know. Obviously, I'm reading other people's books and doing some research and trying to come up with something. The goal is to be, when we're done, we at least have a better understanding of who God is as a trinity, as a triune God. That's number one goal. We at least understand God better. And number two, maybe a far second to that, we're able to at least articulate to people like my uncle Al Pacino how the whole Trinity doctrine works. One of the points is that I want you to keep in mind is part of the reason we have so much trouble is because language is limited for us. We are trying to define God with the limited language that we as humans have. We're finite beings trying to explain the infinite in words that have been translated from Greek to Latin to English and all everything in between. Along the way, our own words get in the way of our definitions. For example, you're going to see that when we start talking about the three persons of God, our English word persons gives us baggage, connotations, if you want to use the real word, to an English major. There are certain connotations to the word that aren't in its denotation, in its actual definition. When we think of three persons, you think of like three dudes hanging out. Early church paintings when they were trying to paint the trinity before they came out with that Boy Scout symbol that we looked at. Early church paintings had three people sitting at a table. That was the trinity. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. We might get up there and there's three people sitting at a table. But that word persons, they were trying to grapple with what are the persons. There's one God, but three persons. Is he a three-headed monster? What does he look like? What's he going to be like to interact with? How does Jesus physically have a body now that he's been resurrected and yet he's still one with God? Does that mean that God has a body in total? Do they share it? What happens? And that's where it all breaks down because Christians kind of like hit a, kind of do the dial tone, the ah, and it just never gets answered. Am I promising you we're going to answer all those things? Hopefully. All right, next slide. Let's talk about language. The church tried to grapple with the doctrine of the Trinity and formally announce it. So if you want to know what I consider sometimes one of the roots of why it's so difficult to understand it, this is actually regarded by church historians as the definitive explanation of the Trinity. It's not the whole thing. This is most of it. But I just want to show you that when the church got together, and this was written, let's say, about the 5th century, this is the Athanasian Creed, One of the creeds, you know, in the early church, what they did to enunciate doctrines and enunciate Christianity in its essential terms was to come up with creeds. You probably know the Apostles' Creed. We talked during the Da Vinci Code series about the Nicene Creed and what was going on at the Council of Nicaea. Well, a few hundred years later, this creed is announced because there's a whole movement of Arian theology, and that's just short to say people who didn't believe in the Trinity. So the church decides to enunciate the doctrine of the Trinity. Let's just take a look at the clarity with which they do so, because this should settle all debate for everybody. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Catholic with a little C for all you hardcore evangelicals, meaning just the universal church of Christ, not the big C, right? But here it is. This is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity, and trinity, and unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such as the Holy Spirit The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, and the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet, there are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three immeasurable, but one uncreated and one immeasurable. So likewise the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, and the Holy Spirit Almighty, and yet there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. So the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Spirit Lord, and yet not three Lords, but one Lord. Does that clarify it for you? We're all done? All right, end of the series. Let's go home. Because that was the official, most concise enunciation of the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, got it? All right, there'll be a quiz next week. That, like half a page of it? Whole two pages? Um, it's probably one more slide about that side that goes on. But it actually, the rest of the creed really deals with Jesus and his incarnation and how he actually has that fully God, fully man, and what that's all about within the Trinity as well. Language, it's very limiting to us. This really doesn't help us to understand the concept. I mean, yes, this doctrine is true. This enunciation in the Creed is true. The theology is correct. But I don't think it really helps us much. And actually, I put this up here to kind of make an example or make a point. Most of the time when we talk about the Trinity or when someone asks you about the Trinity, our answer is kind of like this. I mean, it's not too much different. Somebody says to you, so I don't really understand, do you guys worship like three gods or is it one god? And we say, well, the three are one, but the one or three, it just sounds like this. All we're doing is we're enunciating a truth, and at least it's a truth, so I'm not going to diminish that it's true, but we're enunciating a truth without really being able to explain it understand it ourselves, we're basically just mimicking words back. That doesn't help people who are not, who are in a place that they're struggling. Now, I've heard some things like, well, it's like an orange peel. Like, there's the peel, and there's the orange, and there's the, it's like, so the Holy Spirit's the seed or the peel, or which one is it? You know, I've heard it's like the egg. There's the shell, and there's the white stuff, and the yellow stuff. Like, who gets stuff with the yolk? Who gets that, you know? I've also heard analogies like, well, it's kind of like I'm somebody's father, but I'm also somebody's son, and I'm also, you know, and they use that analogy. It's a pretty good analogy. It's closer because you're dealing now with relationships. You know, how can I be a father and a son and a husband or a nephew or a cousin all at the same time? So obviously I have those roles. I have different titles. One moment I'm being a son, and one moment, but, but am I really three persons? And what does that word person mean? Because, again, we have that baggage that's attached to it, and we're thinking that there are three people. are not people, first of all. There's one being. There's one God, one essence, one holy being. Understanding the Trinity is understanding God's relationship to himself. And the analogies we raised really are more about how other people relate to you or you relate to other people as opposed to an internal relation altogether. And I think it's elementary because they aren't just different titles. There really is something distinct (coughs) about what's going on. I don't think I could rightly say that I'm three persons by being a father, a son, and let's say a husband. That maybe I'm the same person doing different that relates differently to other people like you said. And that's what we're going to be spending some time on in the coming weeks, is really trying to dive into first. Let's talk about this concept of persons. This is a good and right definition of the Trinity that you see on the screen. But I think we're going to simplify it down for the time being. And I actually like this definition that's given in this book. And if any of you guys want to pick it up and follow along, it's called The Forgotten Trinity by James White. This is the basic definition of Trinity that we're going to use for the time being until we maybe elaborate on it. It says this, within one being that is God, so it's one being, within one being that is God, there exists eternally, so they've always existed according to the Creed, it says the same thing, they've always been there, the (coughs) eternal has always been there, three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So one being, that is God, there exists eternally. So that means they've always been there. Three co-equal and co-eternal persons. Now in this definition, an interesting thing is the word being is capitalized. Persons is not capitalized. To emphasize their oneness over the personages that we're going to be talking about. So that's kind of the concept. That's kind of where we're going. Can we collectively come up with something better than this? Not that this isn't true, but when someone asks you straight out like Uncle Al Pacino or anybody else who actually cares to hear the answer, tell me how God is three in one. Go to the last slide if you could, Anthony. Here are just some things that I'm going to throw out for the coming weeks. You may be wondering just to start, and there's a whole bunch more I was going to throw on there, but I thought, you know, it's enough to shake the foundations of our faith a little bit tonight. Where does the word Trinity appear in the Bible? You guys know this one because it's commonly thrown out. Like, the word Trinity doesn't even appear. Where is it? Where's the doctrine located? Kind of leads to the second one. Did the church invent the doctrine after the Bible was written? All right, maybe invent is a loaded word. Didn't the church articulate it after the Bible was written, like that creed we just saw that was not the fifth century. We know there are clues in the Bible, of course, and we're going to be looking at them that lead us to understand the Trinity. In fact, I'll give you a preview. My view is you can't really believe in the Bible without believing in the Trinity because you're talking about God's very nature. But these are some of the questions that people throw out that I think we should be able to answer. Why wasn't the Trinity really revealed in the Old Testament? I mean, there are verses that hint at the Trinity, but how often in the Old Testament is God's oneness emphasized? I mean imagine if the Old Testament had this in it, "Hear O Israel, the God, the Lord your God is well, he's like 3 and 1 and 1 and 3 instead of the most famous cry in the Old Testament, "Hear O Israel, the Lord your God is one." Like why? Why? Why was it a gradual revelation? Why why wasn't that made more clear? And that's a question that a lot of Christians want to know. I want to know. That's what we're going to be investigating together. Where does that come from? How do we best experience God as a trinity on earth? Kind of a practical question for us as Christians. How do we experience a trinity while we're here on earth? We tend to, we tend to kind of pick and choose, like I said, which part of God we're dealing with. You know, We kind of made up our own roles for God. If you need healing, you ask for the Holy Spirit, right? If you want Somebody to be, become a Christian, you go, come Holy Spirit now. So He's only on call when we need like healing or conversion. Or when we're back there on the Sunday morning in the room right before we do worship on Sunday morning, like when we need like that extra measure of like the congregation to clap on beat or whatever, you know, like, come give us great worship this morning, Holy Spirit. That's your job. Okay. But when we need salvation, like spring out Jesus, come on out. We need salvation. We need some good moral teaching. We need some good moral fiber. Give us that Sermon on the Mount. Make us feel guilty about all the things we do. You know? Show us that life lived. You know? That's when Jesus comes out. We need like an almighty miracle. Who are we going to? Like, oh, Jesus, thanks. It's kind of God the Father. Bring him out. You know? We need that kind of miracle now. You know, When we talk about the heavens and how great they are and God creating the world, who's doing that? That's God the Father's job. You know, he's doing the creating, he's doing the big stuff, heavy lifting. He's the one with the scheme, he's kind of the architect. I'm going to make a plan, send my son, you guys are going to believe in him. And we assign these roles to them. Some of them are right, some of them are in our own mind. We tend to separate them out. And that's why this question on the screen is very important. How do we best experience God as Trinity on earth? This artificial separation of roles that we've created may or may not actually reflect God as a trinity. When we worship God, are we worshiping the Father or the Trinity? Here's the other one, and this is something that goes back to our series on heaven. But one of the things that we left that was unresolved out of all the discussions we had that somebody asked and I kind of didn't know, how do we experience the Trinity in heaven? with Jesus as a resurrected Lord in a resurrected body, and God in the throne room, like, well, how does that work exactly? Now, I'll tell you that some of these things may be beyond our finite ability to understand. A lot of them are just because we don't want to study enough to learn the answers. Okay? So there's going to be a mixture of both. I can't guarantee that we're going to comprehend this fully. But those are questions I want to know some of the earlier ones are more like non-Christians want to know. Some of the, the ones that I think are more important for us as Christians sometimes are what we need to know as Christians because we we're supposed to have a vibrant, ongoing relationship with God. And he's telling us that he's a trinity. And we're trying to understand what is that all about. What's going to be like when we go to heaven? Are there going to be like <coughs> three? See, one? How's that work? Can we even get an answer to that? Now, there's a lot more under the apologetic section for the things that non-Christians or people who are doubting the faith really want to know. And there's a whole offshoot of this, as you probably know. Like, can we respond to the call of Jehovah's Witnesses who seem to believe a lot of the same things except they deny the Trinity outright? And there's a whole bunch of other little things, but that's a big point. So we could spend a lot of time dealing with those things, and we might. But the important thing tonight is to justify why are we going to spend this time? I think you can see there's a lot of reason to do it. Chief among those is so that we know God better. And that when we experience God now, we at least experience him, I want to say this word, correctly. Or at least in the manner that he revealed himself to us and that we not tend to do what our finite minds are tempted to do, which is just kind of separate them and just deal with them separately. Come Holy Spirit for this. Jesus, I need you for this. Jesus, you're my friend. God, you're this. And we kind of just move them around when we really need to deal with them as a whole because that's who they are. Questions? All right. I want to say that we're going to get through all those things and, and, and they're going to be clear. Hang on. I have no idea what's going to happen. That's what makes this so exciting is we're going to take on the things that other people haven't and see if something different comes out. Let's, uh, let's pray and close. And then tonight... Like I said, if you guys want to, you're invited over to our place to celebrate Lena's birthday and hang out and eat some food. Let's pray. Lord, I'm feeling the need tonight to give you praise and worship, and I'm because on Pentecost, when your Spirit came, it enabled the disciples to speak and to know things that only your Spirit could bring. Lord, I feel like we're setting up a big task ahead of us. I pray you honor what we're doing because we're only doing it to understand you better and to help other people understand you. Lord, our own knowledge by itself would just be haughty and arrogant. Just doing this for the sake of knowing things is useless. So I pray that we're doing this for the right reasons take on a topic that's ignored, not just because it's ignored, but because we actually yearn to know the truth about who you are and to know you and love you for who you are, the way you revealed yourself to us. And Lord, we openly confess that we need help, that already the temptation creeps in to just stay at the superficial level, leave it where it is now, and not really wrestle with things that are going to be difficult to comprehend that may even raise more questions than answers. But Lord, if that's what results from this, we know in faith that you are still the Lord. We know in faith that you have called each of us and that we are secure in that knowledge, that you love us and that you will take us even if we can't understand these things. So secure in that knowledge and secure in that faith, Lord, I pray that even if this topic just raises questions, that you would be honored and glorified in the fact that we took the time to ask them, that we just took the time to get to know you better and wonder about you and seek to better understand your holiness and the triune nature of the relationship between one being and three persons. And Lord, if you want to, you can uh, surprise us and give us answers as well and give us a better understanding. But we know that that's going to come through your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for each person that's gathered here who's laid aside time to come and study and learn more about you. Pray that you be with us tonight, fellowship and fun, and uh, you bring us back safely. Pray these things in your name. Amen.